Man is used to the miracle that God rules the world and upholds all creation. And because things daily run their appointed course, it seems insignificant. And no man thinks it worthwhile to meditate on it and to regard it as God's wonderful work. And yet, it is a greater wonder than that Christ fed 5,000 men with five loaves and made wine from water. Do you hear what Martin Luther is saying? He is saying that, that God governs over his creation so perfectly and so wonderfully that so oftentimes, and it happens on such a regular basis that oftentimes we fail to take note of it. Or we, we tend to esteem it lightly. Not because we don't think it's important, but because it's so constant. I mean, the things that God is doing, and He's working all things for His purpose and for His glory, and He actually allows us to be part of it, and it happens so regularly, so, so constantly, that we end up taking no thought of it. We often pray that God would do miracles in our lives. That He would do big things. But God is always working in His creation. He's always working in in our lives. He's always bringing about His glory and His purpose. And so today, I think before I get going, let me just, we're going to be talking about the subject of providence and miracles. So how about this? Before we get going, let's define this and let's maybe bring a, a distinction between these two things because I think oftentimes we end up conflating providence and miracles. We call what is actually God's providence, we call it a miracle when actually it's probably more of God's just superintending over His creation. So here we go. Let's define our terms before we get going. So let's define what we mean by providence and miracles. By providence, what I'm saying is that this is God's overseeing events to bring about His His purposes. And we could get much more detailed and much more technical, but I think that's a, a generally a good, a basic, single-sentence definition that God oversees or governs events to bring about His purposes. Let me give you a couple of really good biblical examples, ones that I, I find interesting anyways. And the first one, of course, is of Joseph. And so, um, of course... What part of Joseph's life could not be considered God's providence, but the one that kind of stands out is his brothers are getting ready to kill him, and they throw him into a pit, and they're thinking about, okay, well, how should we murder him? And the Bible says, and it just kind of, and I'm paraphrasing just a little bit, and it just so happened uh, a bunch of Ishmaelites happened to be passing by, and they're heading down to Egypt. Really? And it just so happened. And it just happened to be going to Egypt. See, God is fine-tuning events. And you're going, well, it seems like if he was fine-tuning events, perhaps he could have fine-tuned it so that Joseph wasn't sold as a slave into Egypt. How about that? But later we read in Genesis chapter 50, God meant it, or you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was orchestrating his events perfectly. When you look at the big story of the Bible, you will begin to see that that was an incredible um, work on God's behalf. Another one that, this one I love. It's in Esther chapter 2, verse 3. Your notes may say Esther 3 3. If they do, ignore that. Go to Esther 2 3. Um, and 
It says, so she, that is Naomi, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And she just happened. I guess this is how some of the biblical authors deal with God's providence. And it just happened this way. And the last one we see is in the book of Esther. In Esther 6.1, where the king cannot sleep one night, and he asks for some scrolls to be brought to him and read. I guess reading history put him to sleep. <laughs> so he asks for somebody to bring some scrolls, and it doesn't say it just happened, but they did just happen to bring the scrolls that talked about how Mordecai saved the king's life. And he's like going, well, did we ever repay this guy? Of all the scrolls that could be brought to the king at that particular moment, in that particular time, uh, to uh, bring about God's intended purposes, God had that particular scroll to be brought. And so we see God's providence in that he oversees all the events and brings them about to, uh, at the perfect time in the right way to bring about his purpose. We would call that providence. All right? Sometimes you might say, well, that's kind of coincidence. Well, okay. As Christians, we will call it providence, and you, somebody else wants to call it a coincidence. Somebody said coincidence is just when God desires to remain anonymous. And, uh, but you can see, there's nothing... Well, I'll get there. Let's go to a miracle. A miracle is something completely different. Sometimes we ascribe miracles to providence, but miracles are, complete, are, are really quite different because miracles are actually the suspending of natural law or the overriding of natural laws to bring about God's purpose. So here in providence, God is using natural things to bring about His purpose, but in a miracle, He actually suspends natural law or overrides the natural law to bring about his purpose. So a good example of a miracle would be the Red Sea. Why? Because Red Seas don't normally part. All right? That's not something that happens. Miracles by definition are rare. If they were common, they wouldn't be miracles. They would just be natural. But miracles by definition are rare. And so it is Unnatural for a Red Sea to part. It is even more unnatural for a Red Sea to part and people walk across it on dry land. It is even more unnatural for a Red Sea to part and people walk across it on dry land until the enemies come through and then they get bogged down in the mud. That is a miracle. It is the suspension or overriding of natural law or the laws of nature. But God does miracles. He will suspend or override the laws of nature to bring about His purpose. Another great miracle would be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is this a miracle? Because people don't rise from the dead. You know it and I know it. But but it's even greater than that because we're going to talk today about uh, uh, an individual who is resuscitated, brought back from the dead. But resurrection is something different. Jesus comes back, not only comes out of the tomb and is alive, and we know dead people don't come back to life, but Jesus comes back to life, but not only that, but he has a different type of nature, or a different body, if you will. It is one that is physical, where he eats food, but yet it is non-physical, in that it is not limited by time and space. And so it is this 
kind of interesting resurrected body. So that is a miracle because that then overrides the very laws of nature. And so we see um, we see both miracles and uh, we see a lot of miracles in the Bible. Uh, but what we often see every day is God's providence, God working events to bring them about for His glory and for His purpose. Are we good on this? Alright? Nodding, not nodding off. Okay, so with that, just a quick preview. Today what we're going to do is we go through this passage of text, we're going to encounter God's providence and we are going to encounter God's miracles. Alright, or a miracle of God. We will encounter God's providence. We will encounter a miracle of God to the glory of God so that we might be encouraged to call Him Lord, Lord and do what He says. These things are written. They are not written for no account. They are written for our purpose, for our benefit and they are given to us for a reason. Not just to satisfy any mere curiosity or not just to say, well, what interesting mythology these ancient people had but rather so that we might see who God is and who Christ is and that we might bow the knee and say, Lord, Lord, and build our life upon his words like the wise man, so that when the rains come and the floods arise, we will stand firm. So, that's where we're going to do today, or that's where we're going to go today. My my outline is fairly simple. I'm going to just read the story, um, take a broad look at it, and then I want to focus on three big themes. So, with that... Let's read um, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went down, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the, the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So, it's a pretty simple story that it doesn't, you don't need, we don't need a whole lot of basic understanding of what's going on. Jesus goes to a town called Nain. Jesus raises a dead boy. Basically, he was getting ready to be buried. Raises the dead and God is glorified. That's the story. Now, I want to talk about three big themes. The first big theme we are uh, aware of. And the first big theme is providence. So as I'm reading this, I'm asking myself this story. Why Nain? Why did Jesus go to Nain? After all, Nain was a, an insignificant town. It was a tiny town, maybe couple hundred people, hundred people. It is a small, insignificant town. It's 20 miles from Capernaum. 
Jesus was, his home base was in Capernaum. Can we put the next slide up here? I can get my map up here. And I hope we can uh, see my map. There it is. So why me? So here's the Sea of Galilee. And this little red dot right there, that's Capernaum. That's where Jesus, that was kind of his home base when he was in Galilee. And he travels all the way down here to Nain. It's a 20 mile hike. And they hiked. So how long is it going to take you to hike 20 miles? Not you, Scott. But <laughs> Scott Davidson or Sam, they'll, they'll knock it out quick. But for most people, 20 miles is a, is a significant hike. So why in the world are we told about Jesus hiking with a large crowd 20 miles to go to this nothing town called Nain? Hope to address that as we go through. And as we do, what we see is we see two groups. We see one group coming into town, that is Jesus and his disciples. It says that his disciples and a great crowd with them. Some of these were probably hangers on, some of them were probably um, just curiosity seekers. Others were probably true followers of Christ. But his disciples, that is the twelve, and a great crowd had followed with him, had hiked 20 miles with him. Down to Maine. That's one group. And they're coming into the town. There's a second group. It's also a large group. And they're going out of town. And it is this funeral procession. So we have Jesus and his crowd coming into the city. And we have the mourners, this great crowd, going out of the city. And I have to think to myself, as I'm thinking about this text, I'm going... All of the details that it must have taken for this encounter to happen at exactly that time. In other words, they walked 20 miles. Think about all the things that can go wrong on a 20-mile hike. Think about, well, we're going to leave at 8 in the morning. Well, somebody's going to be late. Right? We're not going to start at 8. We say we're going to start at 8 so that we can start at 9. And then somebody gets a blister, somebody's got to get a rock out of their shoe, we've got to stop for lunch, and there's just all of these things that happen, right? And one little thing goes wrong, and they don't meet this, this group coming out of the city. They get there too early, and, you know, they hike too fast, and all of a sudden, they're there long before this funeral procession ever takes place. They delay, and they get there too late. But not only on that side, there's the other side, the funeral procession side. Some preacher rambles on way too long at the ceremony, giving his sermonizing about, you know, his funeral message. And it takes too long and they're not coming out of the city. Mourning or grief uh, overwhelms uh, the family to such a degree that they can't start on time. In other words, all of these things, think about all of the things that have to take place in order for these two groups to meet each other at the exact right time. That's providence. That is God orchestrating events to bring them about. God's purpose here. And God's purpose of orchestrating all these events is so that he might extend heaven's compassion on this unnamed, unknown, unimportant widow and her son in some remote hick town in Galilee. Which is really, I think, significant. Who is this woman? Well, we don't know. We don't even know her name. 
She's unnamed, unknown, and she lives in a, just an outpost town 20 miles south of Capernaum. This, of course, reminds us how Luke is so focused on the outcast. I said this when we introduced the Gospel of Luke, and I've said this throughout our, our study of this Gospel. I'm sure I will bring it up again, and that is the Gospel of Luke focuses on the marginalized, the outcast, the unknown, and the unloved, and the person who nobody cares about. And here we have an unknown, unnamed woman in an insignificant town, and Jesus travels 20 miles to go and meet her need, and God orchestrates all of the events to make sure that Jesus arrives at the exact right time. That's providence. Here we see Jesus reaching to the lowly and the forgotten. And we should take note as we minister, as we seek to live out the life of Christ in our own lives, as we seek to emulate Him, to not forget the unnamed, the unknown, the marginalized, and the outcasts. Because God seems to go out of His way to get them. So oftentimes we just think, man, if so-and-so who's popular would only come to our church, or if this person would only become a Christian, wouldn't that be great? We all get excited when we see some celebrity quote some passage of Scripture or say something that we that aligns itself with the Christian faith, as though somehow that validates the Christian faith. What validates it? Certainly we are always happy whenever somebody, whenever anybody, calls upon the name of the Lord. But are we praying for the person who is unknown, doesn't smell well, doesn't have social graces, is unkept, unknown, won't make us popular, and won't sell any books. This is who God organizes events to bring about His purpose and His glory in this account. And so Jesus reaches out to the lowly and the forgotten. And this is providence, God overseeing and working through all of these minute events so that Jesus can be there to minister to this unnamed woman and her dead son. And this providence then leads to grace. It leads to a miracle, and the miracle then is an expression of God's grace. One of the things that amazes me about this miracle, that is this raising of a dead boy to life, is not what happens, or not what the account tells us, but what is absent from the account. What's absent from the account, to me, is perhaps more significant than the actual event. Because we're asking, we ask ourselves, and we look at this, and we say, what status does this woman and her son have? What has she done, or what has her son done, to merit God's favor? And this text is utterly and completely silent. 
It does not tell us anything about their goodness or their... Remember last week we were talking about the centurion and at least the Jewish elders who went to Jesus said, He's a good man. He loves our nation and he loves our synagogue and he's built our synagogue. He's a good man. An envoy went out to plead the cause of the centurion and they pled the cause of the centurion on his goodness. Now, of course, as we got further into it, the centurion says, I have no merit of my own. But there was an envoy that went out and said, Jesus, you need to come. Because this is a good man. Where's the envoy for this woman? There is no envoy. There was no messenger who ran from Nain to Capernaum saying, go get Jesus and bring him here. There is no merit. She's a good woman. And she loves God. Her son was a good man. Took good care of his mother. There is no merit by which would cause Jesus to come. There is no mention of faith even. It doesn't say, well, she was a great woman of faith. There is no faith. At least nothing mentioned. She's consigned herself to the fact that her son is dead and she is going to now live a life of oppression as a widow, perhaps being reduced to begging. That's her life. That's what she has to... And she seems there is no mention of anything. So there's no mention of faith. There's no mention of goodness. There is just utter silence. This, folks, is what we call unmerited grace. Unmerited favor. God, for His own purposes and for His own glory, orchestrates all these events to bring His Son to this podunk town in order to raise a dead man to life. This is unmerited favor. She had done nothing to merit the traveling of Jesus for 20 miles with some great crowd to meet her in her need. This is totally and completely grace. Unmerited favor. God showing up to do what God does. And then we come to the miracle itself. Jesus says to the young man, he said, young man, I say to you, arise. He speaks a word and he speaks the word to bring life. Now it's really interesting, when we study the miracles of Jesus, one of the things you'll note about the miracles of Jesus is that they were generally not done in the same way. For instance, when he healed a blind man, he might heal one blind man one way, heal another blind man a different way. He heals people in all sorts of different ways. I suppose that's so that we don't lock him down and idolize some method of, of bringing about healing. Saying if we just, I don't know, rub dirt in people's eyes or spit in their eyes or something, you know, he didn't want us formalizing spitting in people's faces as a means of healing, I suppose. Because we would. But he always does miracles a different way. But here's the interesting thing. In the New Testament, there are three resuscitation accounts. And I say resuscitation because this is not resurrection. This is resuscitation. Resurrection is something different. Resurrection. Jesus is the only one who's been resurrected from the dead. All right? 
He is the first fruits of all those who will be resurrected from the dead. In other words, you and I, if we are followers of Christ, will at one point in the future be resurrected from the dead. But right now, nobody has been resurrected from the dead except Jesus Christ. This is a resuscitation. This is a bringing a dead man back to life. And in the three accounts, the three resuscitation accounts in the New Testament, here's the interesting thing. They were all done the exact same way. Which causes me to sit up and take notice. Because when miracles by Jesus are generally done in a a manifold or a variety of different ways, except raising the dead, which are all done in the exact same way, it causes me to go, hmm, how does he raise the dead? He raises all of them by his word. He speaks and and they come to life. That is... The dead are raised by the word of Jesus. And when Jesus brings life to the, to the dead, he accomplishes it by the means of his word. Folks, here's the truth. God's word is powerful. It is by God's word that worlds exist. Let's bring up... Uh, Psalm, look at this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. I'm going to keep reading here. Uh, I don't have it up there, but it says, Then he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood. He said, Let there be light, and there's light. There is no light, and he just speaks it, and there is, and he says, let the earth bring forth vegetation there is no vegetation but he speaks it and it comes about he brings forth life his word is powerful in Psalm chapter 29 verses 3 through 9 my pages are stuck together We read this, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the the forest bear and in all his temple all cry glory this is the word of God and all of the dead are raised by the word of Christ and we have this passage in John Just to, uh, I think we have one more passage of text there we go, truly truly I say to you an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will do what? hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live God speaks and the dead come to life And it's always the case. And so here we have God speaking to a dead man saying, Young man, I say to you, arise. And this just kind of, this was just interesting to me. He speaks to this dead boy. I don't know about you, I'm not a physician. But dead people don't hear. I'm pretty certain of that. Dead people don't hear. But he speaks to a dead man. But that makes no sense because dead men don't hear. The dead don't hear, I don't think. This is a 
boy, and he's a young man, by the way. The word here is that he's not a young boy, but he's not an adult. So probably somewhere between puberty and marriage um, would be the age of this boy, according to, to our text. But he's dead. Which means that his body, this physical part, has been separated from that non-physical part. We can call it the soul or the spirit, and we can debate that issue at some other time. But there's an immaterial part and a material part. And the material part is dead. It's lying on this funeral pyre, fire, a pallet, a coffin. But that immaterial part of him is somewhere else. Right? Remember the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross... Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's an interesting statement because today you'll be with me in paradise. It's interesting because on that day, that thief's physical body was where? Hanging on a cross. But he was with the Lord. And Jesus was a dead man. His body hanging on a cross. And yet that there was a part of them, that immaterial, that soul spirit, was alive and well and together with one another. This man, his soul and his spirit is gone and his body is dead. And Jesus speaks and even into the realm of the dead, whatever that happens to be, here's the command of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just limited to this physical. Jesus' word extends even to the realm of the dead who now gives up its new possession. So even in the realm of the dead, folks, Jesus is Lord. And there is nowhere, nowhere in all of creation where Jesus does not reign. Where can I go from your spirit? And the answer is nowhere. If I even descend into the pit of Sheol, behold, you are there. And Jesus speaks to this dead body and his spirit comes back and re reanimates him and he sits up and he begins to speak folks dead men don't hear but Jesus calls forth this man to come back to life here's another very interesting instance and that is um, so Jesus says arise and he does but this is no act of free will I don't know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I don't believe that dead people have free will. Dead people are just dead. So Jesus says, arise, his word brings life, the dead men don't hear, and this is no act of free will. So, this is simply God as an act of his gracious power, orchestrating offense to bring his son to this place to powerfully raise a dead man to life. I think we have, go ahead and click one, there we go. God, as an act of his gracious power, orchestrates all of the events to bring his son to this outpost town called Nain to powerfully raise a dead man to life. We have both providence and a miracle. God orchestrating all of the events and we have a dead man coming back to life. This dead man did not make the decision of his own. He did not decide for himself. You know, I think I don't like being dead much longer. I think as an act of my own free will, I'm going to get up and come back to life. 
quite honestly, he probably didn't have any free will in his death either. He didn't say, you know, I just don't feel like living now. I think I'll just go ahead and expire. Dead men don't hear. Dead men don't act. Here's the bottom line, folks. You and I are dead by reason of our trespasses and sins. And here's the thing. Dead men don't hear. Nor do dead men exercise their free will. 1 Corinthians 2.14 say, say that the people who are dead by reason of their trespasses and sins do not understand the word of God. In fact, they are not even able to do so. They are blinded. But God, who is rich in mercy, orchestrates events and brings his son to you even when you are dead by reason of your trespasses and sins. And he speaks the word of life, arise, and you are given new life. Folks, there was a time, I look at my own life, when, before I was a follower of Christ, and I was dead. And I did not hear the word of God. People came to me over and over again and told me the, the gospel. And I mocked them, I laughed at them, I shunned them, and I avoided them, and I wanted nothing to do with them. I remember walking to school one day, and a neighbor girl, I'd never met her before, around the corner, she asked me to go to church. I laughed her to shame. Really? Go to church? You've got to be joking me. I praise God for that girl. Because she was just one step, one small little chink in the armor. Very small. I praise God for her. I don't know her name, never knew her name, never saw her again. See, God, who is rich in mercy, orchestrated events and brought me to his son. And every one of you think about your, when you came to know Christ, that when you realize, you know what, I'm a follower of Christ. Probably shared this a few times, but I'll share it again. A punk kid sitting in his house, never ever doesn't care about high school, hated high school. Just I hated the fact that they babysat us and I didn't need people to babysit. I don't need you to tell me when to go to class and when not to go to class. I'll go to class when I feel like it. I know what I need to do to graduate. I don't need you overseeing me. Hated high school. Never went to a football game, never went to a basketball game, never went to a baseball game, never went to a dance, never went to any event ever on a high school campus. I went to school, and at lunchtime I left campus, and at the end of lunchtime I came back to campus, and at 3 o'clock I left campus. Well, one time I left at 3.30 because I fell asleep in my last class and I didn't wake up until 3.30. But other than that, at 3 o'clock I left. That's another story. And one day, one day, a Friday, I leave my friends and I walk by myself a mile to the school to attend a play. And I hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after all of those years of people telling me about Jesus Christ, God orchestrated all of those events providentially brought them all together so that I would hear the gospel and I would come home and I would hear those words 
Not literally, but I'd hear the words, Arise. And the dead came to life. And I repented of my sins. And I called upon the name of the Lord in my room, by myself. I had no idea what it meant to be a Christian. I said, I don't know what this means. But you're for real and forever now. I will serve you. I don't even know what serving you means. I just know you're God and I'm not. You're holy and I'm not. And I need to be on your side. So whatever that means, I'm ready to go. Providence and a miracle. And your story is pretty much one of the same. God worked all of these events and brought you to a place where he was present and he said, Arise. And the dead heard the voice of the Lord and came to life and began, sat up and began talking. So God, who is rich in mercy, orchestrated events and brought his son to you when you were dead by reason of your trespasses and sins and spoke the word of life and you were now raised from the dead. And on what merit, we might ask, on what basis is this man deemed worthy? It is on the basis of God's sovereign purpose. Here's the thing. There were dead men in Capernaum. He did not need to travel 20 miles with a bunch of battling crowd behind him. Jesus, when are we going to stop and eat? Jesus, when are we going to take a break? Jesus, He did not need to travel 20 miles to raise a dead man. Plenty of dead people in Capernaum. On what basis does this man, is this dead man deemed worthy? It is on the basis of God's sovereign purpose and on the compassion that Jesus has. I love what he says to the mom. He says, do not weep, which is really... I've done a number of funerals and one of the things that you don't do is you don't say don't weep. You don't even need to go to preacher school for that. Just basic etiquette. Don't tell a grieving mom who just lost her only son don't weep. Now if we do say that we say it because the weeping makes us uncomfortable. Jesus doesn't say do not weep because it makes him uncomfortable. Jesus says, do not weep because it's unnecessary. See, here's the thing. Death is an intruder. Death is an interloper. Death reminds us of our bondage to sin and the curse it's been said that death is the great leveler and that is absolutely true because if you are rich or you are poor you will face death yes, if you are rich you might be able to eat better and have better better medical care and clean water and you might prolong your life over somebody who is impoverished that probably will happen but eventually you will die educated or uneducated doesn't matter death is the great leveler it doesn't matter who you are And death is a reminder that things are broken. That things are not right. And Jesus now has compassion on this daughter of Adam who is plagued by the curse of Adam. Death is the result of Adam's sin. And here this woman is being traumatized, is broken in her own heart and in her own soul by the curse of Adam, reminded that she too will join her son in death. 
And there's nothing she can do about it. And Jesus now has compassion on this daughter of Adam who is plagued by the curse. This woman, Adam's daughter, burdened by the curse, is met by the Son of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and has come to destroy the curse. Young man, I say to you, arise. And he sits up and he begins to speak, and Jesus gives the Son to his mother. Two lives forever changed by God's providence and power, and all of it is an act of grace. Well, there's one more thing we should consider. We've talked about providence, we've talked about miracles, and all of this to the glory of God, and we see that here. God's glory. I read to you Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in His temple all cry. Glory. And the first thing we see is that fear sees the people. We should not be surprised. That is the normal response when God shows up. When God shows up, people stand in awe or they stand in fear. We see this from the time of Adam in the garden. They ran from the voice of the Lord and we see it all the way in the book of Revelation. So we see it in Genesis, the first book. We see it in Revelation, the last book. John sees the risen Christ and he falls on his face like a dead man. We see it in Isaiah who says, Woe is me, I've seen the Lord. I am a dead man because I've seen the Lord. The normal response when God shows up is awe and fear. And oh my gosh, I'm a dead man. For he is holy and I am not. And I love their response. Their response You would think if you were in such awe or in such fear, you would run and hide. Their response is great. It is one of rejoicing. God has visited His people. They don't flee, they rejoice. They realize God has visited His people. They've been praying for years. God visits your people. God visits your people since the time of Malachi. There's been this this utter silence from God and they're searching and yearning for a Messiah. And now, God, visit your people, and now the dead are raised, and they realize God has answered our prayer and has visited His people. They First, they stand in awe. Then, they respond by rejoicing. And then the next one is also important. That is, the word that this happened went throughout all Judea. In other words, they told other people. So first of all, when they experience the glory, the providence and power of God, they are in awe of it. Then they rejoice and then they tell others. So I'll conclude then with this. We all have chance encounters with others. I want you to understand that God oversees events. God brings you into contact with other people for His glory. So we might begin to ask ourselves, who will we impart God's Word to today, this week, or today? Plenty of dead folk out there. Who will we impart God's Word to? 
Here's the thing, folks. You and I have been entrusted as disciples to carry on the work of Christ. That's why he trained disciples. He made disciples to carry on his work. And as disciples, we have been entrusted to carry on the work of Jesus Christ. We are to speak the word of God to the dead. That is the gospel by which people are saved. We are to speak that word to the dead, empowered by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And finally, God providentially will guide our steps. Christ and Him crucified is our message, and the Holy Spirit is our power and our assurance. Folks, God will create the events. God will even raise the dead. And God has called you to speak the word, Arise. Father, we come before you this day with great praise and thanksgiving.